Six Figure Developer Podcast, the podcast where we talk about new and exciting technologies, professional development, clean code, career advancement, and more. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. With us today is Kevin Griffin. Kevin is an author, teacher, mentor, and consultant focusing in software development. As an independent consultant, Kevin specializes in helping businesses push their technology stacks into the 21st century. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, guys. Glad to be here. So before we uh, jump into the meat of things, would you give our listeners a little introduction to yourself? Uh, you know, perhaps tell them how you got started in the industry. Sure, absolutely. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Kevin. I've been working professionally in software development since 2006. I don't even know how many years that's been. It's been one too many. Uh, but uh, right out of college, I worked for Symantec, uh, the folks you might know as the Norton security people. And I had that job for exactly three months before I was the victim of a layoff, mass layoff. And I learned that there's absolutely no such thing as job security. And I needed to be able to future-proof my own career. So I got uh, picked up a new job working for a small consulting company. I got very involved in the local community, developer community, and started speaking. And eventually, I uh, quit my job. Went out on my own as a independent consultant, and that was eleven years ago, uh, almost almost twelve, and been doing that ever since. Working with small businesses, helping them grow their stacks, basically solving problems for whomever I can, uh, and that's where we are today. Uh, now I'm the acting CTO for for one of those businesses, but still very active in consulting and training. And uh, my mantra is teach everything you know, and that's what. I, I continue doing to this day. What specifically or what what, what have you been working in uh, sort of most frequently th- these days? Yeah. Uh, so I'm, a, oh, I didn't even mention I'm a Microsoft MVP. So <laughs> I forget to talk about that. Uh, my focus is primarily in deploying solutions to Microsoft Azure, a lot of ASP.NET Core, um, and mostly around web development and um, background services. Uh, so most of my clients are basically taking applications that were built 15, 20 years ago, and they need to modernize them and get them into the, the current century. So we go through, we do a full review of what they were doing, uh, what they want to do, and we go through and put everything in action. Um, but that usually my hammer is ASP.NET Core for all these cases. Very cool. And I know, I think I've seen you um, pretty active on Twitter uh, most days and, and participating in the community discussions there. And I think I, I might have even seen some uh, recent tweets on SignalR. Is, is, that a, an, is that a technology that you get to use often with some of your clients or, or how does that come into play? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so SignalR for folks out there that aren't aware is basically .NET solution to managing websockets. That's kind of the easiest way to put it. Um, really, it's a technology for building real-time interactions between uh, 
client applications you might have out there in your server. So your client might be a, a web app, you might have a mobile app, you might have a thick client still, and having some way for all these applications to communicate back with the server. And more importantly, allowing the server to communicate directly down to the clients without having clients pull constantly. Um, it was introduced back in what 2013, if I'm getting my history right. It was right when WebSockets were starting to become a thing, and you could only use WebSockets in the Firefox nightly builds, and you only did that if you were insane. So most of us didn't take advantage of it, and we were trying to do, we were trying to figure out how to live in this real time world because we wanted web applications to work like thick applications. So if I built a a WinForms app or at that time, uh, what, WPF app. And I, I wanted that real-time uh, just feedback between our servers and our clients. Uh, you, you couldn't really do that easily. You had to, had to fake it. SignalR kind of came around and said, hey, we can be a wrapper across all these different protocols. You just write to one standard interface and everything will magically work. Um, so I picked that up really, really early. Uh, when SignalR was kind of in its beta phase and I started using it and I had a client in particular that came through that was doing real-time 911 aggregation and which is kind of interesting they they were taking 911 data and they were aggregating into all these different views so um, folks not really aware of the geography of the United States there's a lot of big cities, and they have their own 911 systems, and then you have a lot of what we call podunk. It's it's in the middle of nowhere. And if you're getting 911 or emergency services from someone, it might be a county next door and not necessarily in the county that you're in. So our aggregation software would pull all these different county 911 systems and show them in one, one dashboard. Well, the, the problem was it's 911 data. You kind of want this to be as up-to-date as possible. And what the folks were doing before I had come in was they were building a dashboard that updated itself every second. But in order to update, it had to run a whole bunch of server logic. It had to go to the database. The database was figuring out what CSS should be displayed on the page. Um, Suffice it to say, it wasn't very fast. And they were running at 100% CPU all the time. They said, Kevin, can you please help? And I said, sure. So I have this new tool. It's called SignalR. Let me try this out and see what we can do with it. We built a proof of concept, actually pushed the proof for concept in the production. And our CPU utilization went from 100% down to zero. And have you ever pushed something live and you don't actually know if it's working because nothing's happening? It's like, I feel like CPU should be higher than zero or 1%. It turns out it was working fine. It was just processing everything more asynchronously. It was pushing out updates instead of trying to re-render everyone's screen every one second. And we were like, this is a good just baseline. And we kept building on top of that. And so SignalR kind of came in and saved the day because we weren't really worrying about updating everyone's view every one second. We were just updating whenever something actually happened. Um, so I, I use that as kind of a springboard to get really good at signal R and just understanding some of the underlying patterns and processes that you might want to use. And I've helped you know, dozens of clients just basically do the same thing, come in and implement these real-time strategies and patterns into their products. 
So you've mentioned this a couple times, the word real time. What what are the kind of uh, problems and uh, scenarios and maybe what are also some of the problems and scenarios that this doesn't really solve? Uh, when I say real time, it's a, we're talking primarily about states. If you're if you have a product and it's possible for more than one person to look at a particular view or make changes to a particular view or impact the state of the the application on any particular view, you run into this fundamental problem of how do you keep everyone in sync? Um, let's the example I like to use in uh, my course is. You're looking at a product page and the product page tells you you have 10 widgets. Well, what if uh, myself, uh, John, John and Clayton are all looking at the same product page and I buy five of them and John buys the other five. Well, then Clayton's over here saying, well, I want to go buy five and it still says it has 10, but that's not really the case anymore. So you have a bad experience where Clayton goes to hit buy and this page has come back of, we're sorry. We know we said we had 10, but we don't have any now. You have to wait. Um, if we had some sort of real-time mechanism where the server could say, I've sold five, I've sold five, there's no more left. Anyone that's currently looking at this product, here's an updated inventory status for you. Um, we could just shoot that down to anyone that's currently looking. We could do the same thing with um, one of the clients I've worked with, they deal in um, like power plants and basically status messages coming from power plants. Well, you definitely want that in real time. <laughs> so something happens, someone issues an alert. Anyone that's currently looking at the status of that power plant will get that alert message. It's just pushed down to them. Uh, the example I don't want to use is a chat room. That's, that's kind of the, the easy thing that folks talk about, but a chat rooms are the same way. If you're sitting in a chat room, someone types a message, you just want that mess. You just expect that message to be pushed down to you. You don't expect to have to refresh to get the new, the new state of the application. So there's always opportunities. It doesn't matter what the application is that you could just send down status updates or state updates to whatever view someone's currently looking at and make sure that they're currently looking at the current state of the application as it exists back on the server. So why not do this all the time? Like, uh, you know, if I can just get it, you know, is there is there any downside? Or I would say the downside is really small because you have a little bit of overhead just maintaining constant state to a server. Um, with SignalR in particular, not even SignalR, but if we talk WebSockets, a WebSocket is a persistent connection between your clients. So let's just say a tab in the browser and the server. And uh, I don't know about your users, but my users have like 15 tabs open at any one time. Multiply that by a thousand users at any one time, if not more. You're talking a lot of connections back to your server. And it's not necessarily an issue for the server to maintain those. It's more, it's dictated by memory, if anything else. But you also have limits on how many sockets a server can keep open at any one time. Well, if you, and I've run into this case where I've DDoSed myself, where uh, we had an application and it was actually when SignalR made the jump from .NET Framework to uh, .NET Core. 
and SignalR went along with it. It went from maintaining one WebSocket to control them all to individual WebSockets for uh, different, we call them hubs, that you want to manage. Well, uh, we had one particular application where we were expecting one WebSocket, ended up opening six WebSockets per tab, and so on. And um, we're running in Microsoft Azure. It's like, the application keeps crashing. I don't know what's the problem. .NET Core sucks. And turns out Azure said, you're exhausting your socket pool. It's like, what? How is that possible? It's because I was opening 16 sockets per tab. And these folks had like 15, 20 tabs open each. It was just exhausting this pool overnight. So let's just say it, I, I had a long night refactoring that application, uh, getting it down to, we actually got it down to two sockets per tab. And that's been controllable over time. But that's the downside is, and that's more, <laughs> if you written something 10 years ago, and you're trying to upgrade and put it through its paces. Uh, but specifically in the course, I tell people, don't do this. Use one socket uh, just forever. Microsoft will tell you the same thing. Yeah, just use the one socket. Don't don't try to have more than one. But that's been the biggest downside is just you could accidentally kill your server if you're not careful. <laughs> so don't do what I did, basically. So my initial experience with signal R I think was was around the the 2013 time frame or whatever you said uh, was the initial release date um, and really haven't had a, a, an opportunity to to use it a lot uh, just on some existing applications and and maybe um, not implementation myself but but as a choosing it as a solution to a problem, that we had uh, for, for some past applications. Has, has there been much advancement in the initial release of SignalR? I mean, it, it's still basically just a, a way to manage server to server communication or server to client or client to server communication, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, if, if I was doing a talk today on SignalR, it would be very similar to a talk I did back in 2013, 2014 on SignalR. Uh, the fundamentals are basically the same. The big changes have just been syntax and making it easier for you to build these interfaces that your your clients can uh, use to talk to your server and vice versa. Um, so the the big difference completely has just been syntax, not actually fundamentals. Um, when SignalR originally came out, it supported WebSockets and also three other uh, connection protocols. So we, what was it? It was um, server send events. It was long pulling and there was another one called forever frame. And the whole idea with SignalR is if you had a browser or uh, a server uh, conflict and this, they couldn't connect via WebSocket, what was the best way they could fall back to, to a transport protocol that would work? And the worst case scenario is long polling in every single case. And that's the good old, like 15 years ago, I was writing jQuery to do basically the same thing. I would open up an Ajax request to the server and I would send data down on that pipe whenever it was open. Um, long polling is essentially the same thing. So we could go back to IE6 and there's some poor sucker out there that's supporting IE6 right now. And I'm sorry, but SignalR will still work for you on IE6 and it's amazing. Um, when they made the jump to .NET Core, they changed a bunch of syntax, and they also dropped 
forever frame as one of their transport protocols. But you, so you still have WebSockets. You can still fall back to server send events or long polling and everything magically works. And it's literally no code changes on your end. You just, you do the upgrade. Um, there's change a little bit of syntax, but everything magically works the way that it always would have. How does, um, how does SignalR handle disconnects and reconnects? So if you've got, you know, you got a list of things, you want them all in sync, but you drove through a tunnel. Yeah. You, so by default, it, if it disconnects, it just disconnects. Um, and there's, there's a feature you turn on, you can say automatic reconnections and it follows kind of the Gmail approach. So if you ever used Gmail and got disconnected from it, it retries after a second and it tries after two seconds and it has this pattern to retries. And then eventually it, it just says, there's no hope. We're not going to reconnect. Um, the, the thing that usually comes up in client engagements is how do you deal with, the the time from the disconnection or let's say the perceived disconnection and the reconnection. That could be a second. It could be 10 seconds. It could be a couple of minutes. And a lot of folks really want SignalR to do that heavy lifting of remembering every message that could have potentially been sent and resending all the, all the data. And that's just a really poor approach. That's a poor approach in, in general because now you're getting into message acknowledgement on both ends of the spectrum. So the cl- did the client acknowledge all these messages? Um, did the server acknowledge any messages sent to it? Um, maintaining the state of messages that weren't sent. And if you actually sat down and tried to figure this out across, remember, 15 tabs per user, a thousand different users. What if you know, a whole bunch of them go down? How do you manage the state of all these? And the the easy answer is you don't. You assume that if a client disconnects, whatever the reason be, when when and if they reconnect, we just assume it's fresh state. We assume everything on the client is bad, and we ask the server for uh, we call it a resync, but you can call it whatever you want. Our state is bad. We need new state or updated state. Um, I also am an advocate of telling the user we're disconnected. As soon as we reconnect, we're going to go get all the fresh stuff. Uh, yeah, Gmail does that. If you get this disconnect from Gmail and you reconnect, what's well, the first thing it does? It goes and makes sure that your inbox is up to date. Uh, it gets all the fresh stuff. It's not going to go get each individual push message that would have been sent to it for uh, this email or that email or so on. Um, so it's state's kind of a fickle thing. If it's if you get disconnected for any reason, we just assume it's bad throw it away, restart from scratch. And that's usually not as an impactful issue as, as people think it is. Okay, but that, that pattern is something that, that we would program into the app, not something that SignalR has the capacity to do out of the box. Yeah, absolutely. I've, I, I've had clients that specifically wanted me to come help them write an acknowledgement model on top of SignalR, and I usually always say no, because I, I've tried. <laughs> it's... It's a lot of heavy lifting on your end, and it's just easier to assume our state is bad. Let's just go get some fresh state. I think we we talked a little bit about some of the use cases. What are the the clients out there that are using it? Are, are there ones that are uh, openly broadcasting that we're using SignalR in this way, in this form, in this 
successful scenario that you can mimic that you can you know use this technology to benefit uh i don't know of anyone out there specifically saying we use signal as our underlying uh communication transport i know there's several games out there that use signal r as kind of their underlying transport um and games are kind of weird because you you almost want another level deeper in your network protocol than what signal r can give you uh so like real-time strategy games might not use signal r uh first person shooters might not use signal r but some desktop turn-based strategy game my using alarm that's perfect if i'm building chess chess is perfect for for single r um there's actually a lot built into microsoft software um if you're keeping up with the visual studio uh .NET 6 drama that's going on uh there's talk about like hot reload and and stuff like that that's actually built on top of signal r um, microsoft has done an amazing job of dog fooding their own technologies uh, we could there's stuff inside of windows that uses signal r uh one that i can talk about that i learned was the the whole my phone app for um for windows where you can connect your phone to your your windows instance and they sync back and forth well that's all signal r that's doing all that work um so there's a lot going on um the thing i really like to say about signal r is not it's not going to be the fancy technology that folks talk about it's never going to get the keynote at a build or a dev connections or some big um, uh, dev intersection, some big conference. But it's going to be one of those supporting technologies that you sit down and go, okay, well, I really need the, the clients to talk to the server. How do I make that happen? And you'll read some Stack Overflow post from 15 years ago that say, oh, well, here's how you do a .NET socket. And what you really hope you find is something like SignalR Mastery that teaches you how to do real-time communication. Um, it's, and I don't think it gets enough credit kind of in the, in the .NET realm because it's, it's not a exciting technology uh, at all. It's not the new, you know, 10th iteration of building Windows UI apps. Uh, it's, something that happens beneath the scenes and you really don't see it. Um, .NET Conf just happened. The most exciting part of that was they were showing off their little podcast player. And I don't remember which gentleman it was. He said, oh, let's sync our podcast players together using SignalR. And it's one of the first times I've heard someone kind of say, this is what we're using to accomplish a particular feature. And that's a really good use case. We're using SignalR to link these clients together and uh, linking the the state. So it's all up to sync. Well, and that's that's what, I, what we want from our software, right? We want something that is uh, easy to implement. It's, it's something that doesn't require a lot of thought. I have a, a need. I have a use case. Here's an implementation from uh, some software that I can plug into place and move about our day so that we can focus on our business logic that makes us money and not focus on how do we connect services? How do we you know, implement these, this communication protocol? So, so how do we get started with, with SignalR? What, what do you propose on it? What is the file new project path of starting with the SignalR uh, implementation for our application? Yeah. Uh, my, my simple app that I show folks is syncing a text box 
between multiple browser tabs. It's the easiest possible thing I can think of where, uh, so you do file new, you put a text box on the screen and it's less than 10 lines of code, I think all involved for between the client and the server to say, let's establish a connection. Let's listen for the event when a text box is updated, send that value to the server and then it's one line of code on the server to tell it this resend it to anyone else that's connected to the site. Uh, I do I do that app because everyone can follow that application. Um, there's a lot of folks out there in the community. I'm not going to name any of them that will do these very blown up large applications. And say, look at my multi room chat room, and it has. Uh, open ID, OAuth, blah, blah, blah. I can authenticate with Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Look, we have emoji support and um, and uh, Jiffy and all this good stuff. And then they're like, all right, let's ignore the hundreds of thousands of lines of code that make this work. And let's look at this one line of code of SignalR. And I always try to reverse and go, here's the one line of SignalR that does this one simple thing. And it's going to sound dumb and it looks dumb, but now let's start building on top of that because we have a platform. And my entire strategy for teaching SignalR is let's start with the simplest dumb thing that we can think of and let's get a little bit more advanced and so on and so on. So if you already know how to fill in the text box, let's just move on to the next lesson. Um, and eventually you're building full-scale web applications that can sync 911 data down to anyone that's currently watching. So are there tips or tricks or mindset changes or gotchas that someone who's used to, you know, de developing or using, you know, like HTTP REST calls, uh, you know, if they're wanting to use SIGLAR to, you know, in, in this real time uh, scenario, and they're trying to bring that into their application, but this is not something they're familiar with, or is there is a different mentality that you have to approach it? Or, you know, what would you say to them? It's a it's a separate tool in the toolbox. Uh, I still love REST calls. Um, I still will build RESTful services. I will make RESTful calls for pertinent data or for important operations. Um, the biggest reason for that is that you know, when you make a RESTful call, there is a pre-established pattern that you're following. You're making a GET request to a URI. You're getting back a status code. So you know whether or not something was successful, there was a failure, or the browser had to go do something. There is a process that happens. Uh, when you're working in SignalR and you're working, you're working very asynchronously. And kind of going back to the conversation we had earlier about what happens between disconnects and reconnections. If my client makes a request, uh, I can usually know if that request makes it to the server, but once it makes it to the server, I'm oblivious to what happens after that. Because me, think of SignalR more like uh, going outside and just yelling, yelling down the street. Anyone that's outside listening will hear your message, can react to it. But if they're not listening and they're not hearing the message, it just kind of goes off into the ether. Um, with restful calls, it's more like picking up the phone, dialing someone. Like, remember when we used to make phone calls? That's that's how it is. Uh, you would call a person; they would an they would either answer the phone, you'd have a conversation, to be done with it, or they would never pick up, 
or you get out of service, something would happen, but you would know whether or not that phone call was successful. SignalR is not like that. It's um, your, if you know you're connected, 99.999% chance your message is going to make it there. But you, know, you just don't know if anything's coming back. Uh, if so, if you have these disconnection issues. So I tell everyone, that's why you never trust the state when you're disconnected for any period of time. If it's really important, use just fall back to restful statements. Um, and a lot of the times I won't use SignalR for heavy payloads. Like I'm not going to go get a hundred products from the database, bring them down to, uh, down to my server. I'm sorry, get a hundred products from the server, bring them down to my client through, through a WebSocket, even though I could, what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a message down from the server. That's a kilobyte that says this product was updated. Here's either the new state for it, or maybe you should make a restful call to go get the new state or, or get a new list of products. So it's kind of using these two very well-known technologies in unison to uh, just make everything easier on you. Very cool. Very cool. So it sounds, it sounds a lot like dealing with like maybe like a pub sub or like an event source system as opposed to, you know. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Okay. And that's the biggest mindset for people to get over is just, I'm used to making restful calls and now I'm moving to this new model and I was like, oh, I have a new toy. Everything has to use my new toy. So I'm getting all my state through the WebSocket, and that might not necessarily be the best move. Anything we missed? Um, the other big topic is scaling. That's always a big concern for folks. So um, what if you need to handle multiple multiple servers, a load balance scenario? Uh, scenario? Um, that's, a, that's like the biggest, one of the biggest concerns for folks. Yeah. So, so what about that scenario? What, how do we handle if, if we need to use SignalR in a large enterprise that has tons of microservices or monoliths or whatever the case may be? How, do, how does SignalR scale at, at that level? That's a great question. Um, there's really two supported ways. The way that Microsoft wants you to do it is that they want you to pay for the Azure SignalR service. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's a great service. It's fantastic. And what it actually does is anyone who connects to your uh, SignalR, uh, your application via SignalR, they actually control all the connections themselves. So you don't, your clients don't connect to your server. They connect to Azure and Azure acts as a proxy directly into your application. So instead of your app having to manage a thousand connections, it only really has to manage like two or three. And that's it still processes all the requests as they come in, but it doesn't have to maintain the the overhead. Uh, that works really well. Until you have to scale up. And like, you know how Microsoft and Azure, they they want to just bill you for everything. I have a, a video specifically in my course where I talk about, I, I call it real client math. So let's sit down with a client that requires resources that they would just have to pay extraordinary amount of money for, um, and it's not worth it. So we actually fall back to the second way of doing scaling, and that's using um, Redis Server. So you can tell SignalR, I still want to manage the connections, but I need to solve this weird problem when I have n number of servers. I need all these servers to be able to talk to each other. Here's the scenario. If I have in servers, 
and I connect to server A and John and John connect to server B and Clayton's over on server C. Well, if I need, if I send a message to my server telling it, tell everyone that I've bought five products. Well, that server's going to turn around and notify everyone on server A. Well, what about the folks on server B or server C or so on? Well, we maintain this backplane and it's done on Redis server because Redis is very performant for these sort of um, pub sub scenarios. And server A will tell server B and C, hey, you need to go notify your users that this event has occurred. So it's a great way to keeping everyone in sync. And it's a little bit more cost effective because hosting uh, Redis in either your own VM or Azure Redis cache is way cheaper than scaling SignalR service over the period of connections. And my fundamental problem with Azure SignalR service is that you pay per day. Uh, it's not per hour. If they were doing hourly billing, it, it would be way, I would recommend 100% of the time, but they haven't done that yet. So I'm not going to push people to it. Uh, and the reason we didn't use it was in order to support our user base, we would have to scale to what is like five or six units. Now we're talking like six, 700 bucks a month. And I only really needed it for four hours a day. After that, I could scale down to one or two units. Everything would be fine. But they use like SQL Azure pricing where if you scale up, you pay for the day. So you might as well just use it for the day and then scale down when you don't need it. Uh, that wasn't maintainable for us. And it wasn't, and, it's, and a lot of it's because I architected my application to have six connections <laughs> when we made the, the .NET Core um, move. If I was just doing one, I could probably have gotten away with one or two units. But, you know, I had a poorly architected application that I didn't realize it. So that's why I tell people have there's two there's two scenarios. Use the one that's best for you. That's excellent. Uh, so what resources might you point our listeners to who are looking to get uh, started or learn some more about SignalR? Sure. Well, first is. The ASP and the core docs, um, Microsoft or docs.microsoft.com. Uh, I've personally have committed a couple articles to that, just trying to teach people the best way to go. It's it's been a long, long living document. So back in 2013, when they wrote the first version of SignalR, that's when everything got started, and we just kind of built it up from there. Uh, and I think it's fantastic for most folks just jumping in, needing to get a, a resource or a reference here and there. Uh, I have a course at SignalR Mastery, uh, so signalrmastery.com, and it's actually video um, instruction on how to get started with SignalR from the beginning, and we go into more advanced scenarios, kind of like what we talked about here, and we talk about things like scaling, and then uh, I answer a lot of folks' questions, um, and we talk about real products, so I have several clients I've worked with. I'm allowed to talk about their their applications in in this sort of setting. And we talk about what does that architecture look like? And hopefully someone can learn from that. I think folks are really interested in how to use this in a real product. And that's kind of the case we wanted to cover. What has been helpful in your career that you might share with those just getting started or those looking to level up their own careers? Absolutely. Uh, so it's kind of hard to give this advice during COVID times, but getting involved in your local developer community, ever, however local it is, uh, when I got started in the community, uh, 
my closest user group was two hours away. And I committed myself every month to driving two hours north and then attending the meeting and then driving two hours south. And that was till, until the, I decided I wanted to start my own group. And I started going out to conferences and I was just being involved. 99% of your success in this industry is showing up. Um, go to the conferences, go to user groups, talk to people. And when you find yourself in this position, you're looking for your first job, you're looking for a new job, you're maybe looking to jump from being a VB6 consultant to uh, working in machine learning, having contacts and people you know already in the industry because you're attending these events, that's a great springboard into leveling yourself up. Uh, I've, uh, I said it earlier, I try to teach everything I know and the folks I, I hang out with at these community events are the exact same way. They just want to teach everything they know. And we realize we're not really competing against each other. We're just helping each other and our resources are getting better. Our networks are getting better. Everyone's getting jobs. Everyone's leaving jobs because they get better jobs and there's nothing wrong with that. So, but it all boils down to, you just have to show up and show up and just continually show up and sky's the limit. Awesome. Uh, where can our listeners go to follow you and keep up with what you're working on? Sure. Uh, I'm on all the social networks, uh, except TikTok. I don't do TikTok. I'm nah, not there. Uh, but I'm at one Kev Griff. That's the number one Kev Griff. And you can find me everywhere there. Um, I have a blog that I try to maintain, you know, at least once a year. I have a regular basis uh, article writer. I write one blog a year that's regular. So, you know, I'm good. Uh, consultwithgrip.com is where you can find me. And yeah, everywhere else is uh, at one Kev Griff. All right, Kevin, thanks so much for joining us tonight. This has been great. Really appreciate it. Yeah, gents, I appreciate it. Thank you. That was Kevin Griffin. Kevin is an author, teacher, mentor, and consultant focusing in software development. As an independent consultant, Kevin specializes in helping businesses push their technology stacks into the 21st century. If you like this episode, please like, rate, and review on iTunes. Find show notes, blog posts, and more at sixfiguredev.com. And catch us on Twitch and be sure to follow us on Twitter at sixfiguredev. This has been another episode of the Six Figure Developer Podcast, helping others reach their potential. I'm John Calloway. I'm Clayton Hunt. And I'm John Ash. Ah!